Let's visit the 90s all over again. Put on those hammer pants. This is Dope Nostalgia. This is episode 50. It's a big one. I'm very, very pleased that we've made it this far. And things just keep getting better all the time for the uh, podcast. So thanks to you. Uh, we're doing quite well. We occasionally make it on to an iTunes chart, Apple Music chart, and uh, that's pretty thrilling for me. By the way, my name is Naomi. I'm your host of Dope Nostalgia. Episode 50 has a very, very, very special guest um, that I can't even believe I got on the phone. <laughs> um, the audio quality, we've worked on tweaking it a little bit because sometimes phone calls don't have the best audio quality, but my friend Mike Brazo helped me out a little bit with that. Just try to smooth it up a bit just so it can sound the best for you. The chat was fantastic. I learned a lot. I took some great advice and heard some amazing stories about what it's like for a strong female in the music industry and the things she had to encounter. That's going to be coming up very soon. But I wanted to take a moment to talk about our Patreon. Reason being, Patreon is existing right now um, to help pay for the podcast production um, just to, if you have the extra dollar or whatever to support the podcast, you just go to patreon.com forward slash dope nostalgia. If you want to become a subscriber, um, there is bonus content available for you. There's bonus merch for different tiers on the Patreon as well. And yeah, it's just an absolute thrill to be able to do this show for you. So, Hey, um, I'm just happy if you can't afford to do Patreon, I totally get it. It's a tough time right now for a lot of people. Um, just the fact that you listen and you comment and you talk to me about how you like the show, that's enough for me. Sorry if you're hearing a little noise in the background. There's a little kitty, <laughs> a little kitty making some noise. Another thing I wanted to tell you about the Patreon is um, I decided before there used to be some bonus video when I did an interview, if there was video from the Zoom chat, it would go on the Patreon. After doing some thinking about that, I decided that I don't want to profit off that content. Um, like I say at the end of the show, artists should be paid for their work. And I don't want to personally profit in any way off of the time that they've lent me because they've done me such a huge favor just by spending the time on the show. Um, of course, we spend the time promoting what they're currently working on and trying to get their name out there. But I think it's really important to not profit off of that. So um I'm going to look at subscriptions now, like you guys can feel free to help support the show because it does help me with my production costs. I do hope to make this a, um, a very viable podcast one day um, financially. It'd be really nice if I could, you know, quit my job and just podcast. I think that would be a lovely dream, not real reality at this time. Uh, but here's what happened with Patreon this year. We've had one amazing subscriber that um, put a lot into the show. And we made a total of $100 on the Patreon. So because of that, I'd like to thank Crystal Hicks for being my best supporter. Um, she put in a lot to the podcast. She's a fantastic person who works at the Stollery Children's Hospital. So what I've decided to do is take that Patreon money, that $100, and I've donated it back to the Stollery Children's Hospital just in time for Christmas and hope to make a difference and pay it forward. So I want to thank Crystal for her donations. And uh, I just want to make sure they're going to the right place just in time for the holidays. So, all right, <laughs> let's get right into the show. I want to tell you all about my very incredible guest today. This is Alana Miles. Wikipedia, Wikipedia moment. Alana Miles was born Alana Biles on Christmas Day, 1958, in Toronto, Ontario. 
She is the daughter of William Douglas Biles, who was a pioneer in the Canadian broadcasting industry and was inducted into the Canadian Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 1997. Now, the rest of the interview I'm going to take straight from her bio on her website at elenamiles.com. All right, so... Alana Miles was born in Toronto, Canada, of course, listening to FM radio stations that introduced her to an international compilation of music. She was raised in the city of Toronto, where she studied to become a graphic artist, splitting time on her family's ranch in Buckhorn, Ontario, and spent her early years competing as an equestrian on the Ontario A circuit, competing in Canada's prestigious Royal Winter Fair prior to deciding that she would make music her calling. Alana appeared as an actor in TV commercials, modeled, styled wardrobe for local celebrities, worked as a makeup artist and consultant to pay for her early demo tapes in attempts to secure a record deal for her team. Though she was born to a privileged family, she chose to remain independent. After a decade of paying dues, performing concert venues, drinking establishments, nightclubs, coffee houses, and hotel bars, she spent five long years recording her debut album, released by Atlantic Records. Alana was and will always be married to her music. The Alana Miles' first self-titled album released in Canada in the spring of 1989 produced four top 40 hits, La Viz, Black Velvet, Lover of Mine, and Still Got This Thing. Released internationally in 1990, Atlantic Records finally hit pay dirt with her number one international smash, Black Velvet, winning a Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Performance, along with several Canadian Juno Awards, a Diamond Award for sales in excess of one million in Canada, the only artist who still retains this status for a debut record. After its first year of release, Black Velvet received the ASCAP Award for over 1 million radio plays and the ASCAP Millionaire Award in 2005 for over 5 million radio plays. SoCan in Canada awarded the songs Black Velvet and Lover of Mine, each with an award for over 100,000 plays in Canada in 2005 with her number one hit, Song Instead of a Kiss, to follow. Follow-up multi-platinum album Rocking Horse in 1992 received a Grammy nomination for the title track Rocking Horse and three Canadian Juno Awards. Prior to her third 1995 Alana album, she signed with manager Miles Copeland after attending his annual songwriting retreats held at the Marouette Chateau in France. After the sale of her 8 million records, she concluded her alliance with Atlantic Records, and in 1997, ARC-21 Records released her fourth record, Arrival, in 1997, which saw the top 40 hit, Bad For You. Atlantic Records cemented Alana's release from her 7 and 8 album deal with a parting gift, the very best of Alana Miles in 1999, a compilation released on Warner and internationally on ARC-21 and EMI, re-released as Miles and More in 2000, on ARC-21, containing hits from all four albums and is scheduled for termination. Funds from an out-of-court settlement with a national Canadian publication afforded Elena the luxury of spending the time required to record, executive produce, and co-wrote nine of the 11 tracks for Black Velvet, leased to an indie label in Canada, which has since 2013 been terminated. The album includes a contemporary remake of her classic hit, co-produced with Torontonian Mike Borkowski and Veronica Ferraro from France, mixed by renowned producer Terry Brown. The lease for Elena's independently owned 2009 CD Black Velvet was terminated on September 1st, 2013. Repackaged, retitled 85 BPM, with added tracks including an original re-record of Black Velvet. Return master recordings of her 1997 Arrival CD are now distributed by TuneCore.com, re-released to all online digital stores, with future remix plans in celebration of her 25th anniversary. Now listen, one of the most successful female artists in Canadian music history. 
agreed to be on this show. And she's here telling you her story. And you know what else? Make sure if you support Alana Miles and you buy her music, make sure you're spending that money on her album 85 BPM, okay? Because that is the album that she's going to make money off of. Not the record company, not Warner. Let's support Alana Miles and check out this amazing interview. Welcome to the show, Alana. I want to thank you for your time today. I know uh, you're probably very busy, and I, I want to know what part of the world have you been spending your time in during this uh, strange time? I'm in Toronto, Canada. Yeah? Yeah, I'm holed up there. I've been living in Toronto for a while, so I'm in a safe environment. That's good. Um, what would be one of your favorite places in Canada um, during, like, your touring time and just basically from everywhere you've got to travel so far? Least of all, uh, oh, uh, where am I calling? Uh, what part of the country am I calling? I'm in Edmonton. Ah, okay. Edmonton was one of my favorites, not just because you're from there, <laughs> but um, it was a very different audience than Calgary. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. It was, Cal- I mean, everybody was just as sophisticated. They all loved the music, and in their own way, mm-hmm. just as much as each other. But Edmonton was a city, and Calgary was like a village. Yeah. They may not want to hear me say that. <laughs> well, but I don't I got, saying that, of course. I, I found there to be value in both because I'm a small, I'm a, I was raised down in downtown, well, not in downtown, but I was raised in Toronto as a city girl. Mm-hmm. But I, half, and then the other half was raised up north in the Kawarthas, mm-hmm. near the Indians, in the Indian Reserve. So I got a lot of exposure to both. And I felt equally as comfortable in Edmonton as I did in Calgary, but they are very, so very different. Yeah, and I haven't been to Calgary enough to really notice the difference. One thing I thought about Calgary, though, is it seems aesthetically cleaner than Edmonton. Let me think. That could be because of the population. Uh, possibly. They're also a little more stringent in... Uh, they take more chances in, in, in Edmonton. It's a bigger city, you know? People want more from... It's like a small Toronto. And Calgary, well, they're like... They're, they're, they're like a Stratford. They're like, they like their art and their fashion and their jewelry and their... Uh, little uh, places to eat in their enclaves. You know, it's a very small little place with a lot of people in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's nice to have My that. My favorite place. <laughs> oh, gee, where? Wow. Look at Denai. Places <laughs> like uh, Kelowna, Nanaimo, um, uh, Banff, and Whistler. Well, it's beautiful, but I can't handle elevation. Yeah. I got I get dizzy and kept passing out. I suppose, like, the higher it is, the harder it is to sing and get, like, proper air. Yeah, you can't the air is so thin, and I can't figure out why you're, you're, you're thinking crazy thoughts. <laughs> like, it's okay if I put the cigarette out, out on top of your head, you know. <laughs> uh, well, you've always represented yourself as sultry, sexy, confident. What defines sexiness to you? Um, you know, I have, it's, a good, it's a very, very good question. And I thought about this before I called because I, I remember you mentioning I read some of the copy before when Christian sent it over went before we uh, uh, I thought about this because I think it's really important if it's going to bug me then I'm going to say something about it because I think it would help young uh, I don't have anything to say about the men because when men sing Black Velvet in particular mm-hmm. they don't sing it with an emphasis on sexy quote unquote mm-hmm. they just sing it women don't do that women want to be me Mm-hmm. Women want to be sexy, but they're not, 
what they don't understand is sexy comes from when you're not trying. Yeah. When you try, it's like being slutty or like a hooker or a prostitute. And it's like, uh, and, you know, I might as well pay for it. But sexy, in my opinion, is the whispering in the ear of a child, positive thoughts as you're holding baby Elvis in your arms, intro black velvet, just kidding. But, you know, that's, it's not sexy, it's sensuous. Mm-hmm. And I think the epitome of sexy is sensu- sensuality. So if you can touch people's senses, like comedians can make them smile, or a songstress can make a person, like Celine can make you cry, mm-hmm. then you've touched a person's senses. And I think that's what sometimes, by in an answer to your question, mm-hmm. if you're, and this is for the girls, because the guys don't seem to do what the girl, girls make the mistake of doing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Try more to be a really relaxed, like I sang Black Velvet in 99 degree heat, and that's where the, mm-hmm, all that really nice and so slippery stuff came out. Yeah. I don't have to think about it. It just came out. You're right. What, whatever was inside and hot was all like, oh, yeah, and out it comes. Like a real, like a, just like, you don't even not need to think about it. You're right. You know, and that way it, it kind of feel like you're sitting at the campfire. If you, It's an acting job, I know, but to, to carve into or to tap into uh, a sensuality in yourself in order for another person to feel it. You're right. It has to be a natural thing because I've seen. People it has to be a natural it. thing. I've seen people. It has to be, and I, I think I just touched on the ingredients. So if any of the young ladies are listening, <laughs> I'll pass it around because I'd love to hear a young lady sing from her heart, not what she thinks I'm going to like or she's copying something I laid down. I'm not. The, you know, I laid down a blueprint for myself. Yeah. But you have to know the ingredients. And every female who wants to be a rocker seems to sing that song at some point. In their either in their cover band or, or in and you know it's not a rock song it's a blues song <laughs> if anything it's a country song but they wouldn't the record company refused to allow you to put out a country version yet they made another girl record the video identical to mine except supplant the horse with a bike and uh, her career went down the tubes but it, at first before people figured out that she um, plagiarized my video they realized she, she'd been, they didn't know that she'd been forced to sing the song by my record company. And I asked, why did you do that? And they said, well, we wanted to create a Led Zeppelin. <laughs> it, see, it, you can't create a Led Zeppelin. Mm. Sorry, Led Zeppelin it or not. <laughs> but they were, by being fake about it, they cost that poor girl her career mm-hmm. and made her look like an idiot. It's very rare. Like she had nothing of her own, and she had plenty. She was a songwriter <clears throat> in Nashville. It's very rare. For and it also depleted the whole point. I could have a country song. For 20 years, they argued with me that, no, no, it's not a country song. No, no, it's a rock song. No, no. Oh, whatever. <laughs> it's a country blues song. Yeah. Absolutely. But, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen an instance where somebody did something that was considered a copycat or the record label said, let's make one of these, and it was actually successful. No, I don't know either. You know what? Let me think about this. Hold on. Yes, there has been, because uh, I know history. Mm-hmm. Celine Dion sang uh, a song that Jennifer Rush sang called, 
There's a billion of them called the same title called Da 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 Da. Uh, I am what, Lady Something I. Anyway, Jennifer Rush had a big, huge hit song. It was a ballad, mm-hmm. power ballad, The Power of Love. Oh, right. And she had a huge hit with it in England and the rest of the world. And it touched down, it got top 40 in America. And Celine Dion cut it and it went to number one. I feel but like... I mean, that's Celine Dion, okay? <laughs> yeah, she's had pretty. You know, good. she's got the voice of, she has the voice of power of love. That is true. That's true. And there are exceptions to the rule. One can't just dismiss because you think of it that way, because then you're, you're taking away, again, it's from that singing from the gut. If you really love it, sing it. Mm. If you really don't, well, again, therein, when there's been songs I didn't want to do for whatever political reason, because somebody wanted to use me to get their jollies out, mm-hmm. and I was like, I'm not doing that expletive song. <laughs> um, and then after a while, when they forced me to do it, uh, and I did it, I went, oh, my God, I rewrote the song. I didn't get points for it because I was copying somebody else's um, song and doing my version of it, which is a shame because if I, you know, changed the words, I could have just made it my own and taken the credit. However, I did it to spite someone, and sometimes that anger, that Capricorn anger, just made me spite the performance and out came. When I'm frustrated, I do strange things to a song. Like, I think the first song I ever sang, Rock This Joint, the lyric wasn't typed out for me. Mm. And I'm not good with lyrics, so they have to be in front of me. Even my own, they have to be in front of me on tape so I can see. And even on stage sometimes, because I have a mind block, because I rely on what's going to come out, and then I, to the to the disadvantage of the lyric. So I don't want to forget the lyrics. I keep it in front of me as a roadmap. Mm. And we put the um, the lyric up on a, a, a piece of paper, but I was so into it and couldn't see half the stuff in a dark studio that out came the song. And it, and we couldn't better the song, so we put it out the way it was demoed the very first time it came out of my mouth with the lyric content going, can't get you right out of my head. Well, now that's singing, that's speaking in style, but 30 years ago, right out of my head wasn't really in English language. Mm. You know, but because it was so spirited and so I wasn't thinking about what I was doing I was just expressing mm-hmm. we were smart enough at least the producers were smart enough David Tyson was smart enough to say you know we had to um, uh, what they call baking the tape because it's on two inch tape it's before digital uh, existed the analog but they had to bake the tape to get the oxidization on it, off it because the demos were about three or four years old by the time we got to mastering right so we had to bake off the the, the collected um, debris, which is kind of carbon dioxide and various films that gather on the surface of the tape to get rid of the hiss. Bake it, and and so we could get the original version because it was really good. And I can't, no, you listen to it and you go, wow. <laughs> so, you know, there's sometimes when that was in the beginning when. I think I was probably shown, like, I'm telling this story to you now, but it was over the years I've learned something about myself, is that sometimes you've just got to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. And when you try and screw with that flow, you're really, like, that song, it may not have been a single, but people loved it like a single. It had life. Mm. And, and that's the way I want to make records. And it's so hard to commit to that vocal for me. When I see the red button in my head, oy, I become like every one of those girls who wants to be sexy. Mm-hmm. 
I imagine that the red record button is going and I imagine myself being someone else. So I kind of try to beat myself up over and over and over again until I'm so tired, out comes whatever I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. That's when, you know, that's when uh, Mary Jane steps in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you've got to be authentically you for it to actually work. I think so. Mm. Now, and I know that whenever I've lied to myself thinking I can sing this song successfully, I've been begging the, the gods to try and get me through it because I don't know how, I, I, you know, I hate it. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm one of those kinds of artists that someone really, really important, who I, uh, a dear, dear friend like Corey Hart would ask me to do something, I'd actually say no, because I have to feel it. And if I don't feel something, I can't do it. He understands that, so it's not rejection. Yeah. He just knows I'm like Mikey, and if Mikey can't do it, nobody can do it. Well, that leads into me asking you another question about... Um one thing I've had to encounter when putting my foot down with people about my limits is being called a bitch. Now, have you had to encounter this kind of ignorance from people for being a strong woman and saying, no, this is my limit? Yeah, all after the age of 50. Yeah. I mean, people call, well, nobody calls me a bitch now. They just think I'm a bitch. Uh, and I probably am. But um, it's wisdom coming out loudly, I say. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, you know... All I have to go on with that, with regard to that kind of a comment, is when I was making music, I was with a group of men who uh, I don't have a career because of the, the group of men. Mm. When my career was, I uh, how do I put this? There's a book involved, but I I don't want to be sued, so I'm not writing it. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not the kind of person that would ever cow to anybody. Mm-hmm. I never got to where I got on my backside. Mm-hmm. Once I was sued, allegedly, by uh, Stephen, what was his name, Bruce Allen, uh, for, in a conference many, many years ago, the very, very beginning of my career, he announced in front of 5,000 people in B.C., somewhere out west, mm-hmm. might have been Edmonton. Hmm. He announced, it might have been Edmonton, a, co- a conference, a music conference, and he announced in front of 5,000 people that, that somebody asked a question about Atlanta Miles. And I guess Brian Adams was down for a few records and not out there in the charts. Mm-hmm. And he was bored, so he thought he'd take a poke at me and did a Trump thing in, mm-hmm. in hindsight. He did a Trump thing by saying, oh, Atlanta Miles would, with F, FK, anyone it, it, it took to get her to the top. Wow. But the whole audience just went, oh. Because everybody in the industry knew that Christopher Ward was my boyfriend of nine years, and I'd had nobody, and we split up and, and continued. Mm-hmm. We still remained together as partners, but not, not romantically. Mm-hmm. It was a vicious, vicious swipe. Now, the problem was that about a year and a half later, I'd fallen in love with none other than one of the top people in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So when... Uh, my lawyers came to me and said, look, might not be a good idea to go to court with this one. I said, why? They said, well, you are effing someone at the top. And you did. The last boyfriend was Christopher Ward. Even though you've been with him for nine years, the public looks at it like it's someone from the top. Now, this comment was made before I was romantically involved with someone in the top of the rock and roll world. Mm-hmm. But it didn't. it didn't help me, did it? Well, isn't it still public defamation, what, he, what Bruce Allen said? 
that can't be fired. But you could put some, you could, in, in the eyes of uh, the, the witnesses watching my public, my romantic life evolve, you could accuse me of that. Hmm. And, I, and, and, and so I was directed by my lawyer, you could lose this case. So you can go out with all your ire and say, you know, screw you, I'm going to win this. I don't know, can you swear on your show? Yes. Oh, well, fuck you. You're not going to win this case. I'm going to win it because I'm in the right. But in this case, I, I, it was too fragile. It could spoil my career to do such a stupid thing over pride, over a, a faux pas so large. So I, I would, what do you call it, hesitantly or really reluctantly went, oh, okay. And because uh, I didn't want to draw attention to my romantic life, if you will. Mm-hmm. I'm a private person, and they knew that. So to keep things private, I said nothing but. I got a bill from the lawyer for about $9,000, and I sent it. The minute I got it, I said, you sent this to Bruce Allen. Do you know what? He paid it. <laughs> Do you think he felt any remorse for his comment? Of course, he paid the bill. <laughs> why I dropped the case and we became acquaintances I like him but I, I if I was still going at things I'd have the manager he's an incredible manager mm. but you know we, we I actually um she invited me to do a show in Vancouver and nobody believed I was going to do it but I actually did show up but I was 10 minutes late because mm-hmm. I was uh confused about the time zones but I did call in and it was a really really good interview and it, was a, and it was lovely and very, very, uh, in fact, this is an interesting story I'll never forget. Um, and I was very grateful to him. Um, I don't think he could figure out what the hell happened, why I didn't nail him for $9 million. Instead, I got a $9,000 bill from my, my lawyer that I said sent it to him. He, he brought this on and he paid it and that was it. We dusted our hands off and that was it. That was my settlement. Well, I bumped into Brian Adams in Germany one day, and he started to tell me about the story, and I went, oh, dear. You know, and he, he started, he told me a bit of a joke, ha-ha. It was a joke around their office. But I think only because I'd been, you know, forthcoming and, and acquiescing to an interview with Bruce, and, and I'd, I'd done that funny thing with the send him the bill. You know, you pay it, I'll be, I, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. But then when I did this interview with him, it was a few years later, and he got my back. And I knew what a great manager he was. Mm. I was uh, on live, I think it was BC, he had a, a radio program, and some fan called in and said, I was watching you on stage the other night, and you called out your, you told your somebody to fuck off, or you said this, or you bitch, 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 whatever. Well, they were watching from the outside. But what they failed to realize was, I was doing a show where in my contract, it states very loud and clear, you're not allowed to use smoke. They tried to use it in the day, mm. and I was very clear in sound check about not using smoke, it's in my contract. Yeah, well, they figured while I was on stage, I couldn't yell and scream, so they uh, put up the smoke for the show effect and ignored my wishes, and I started screaming and yelling at backstage because my voice was going. Mm-hmm. I lose my voice. I'm allergic to the dry, uh, the uh, gas that they put, the oil that they put to smoke out the place. Yeah, that's And I know this from all the television that I did, commercials and film that I did before music and film. That's how I knew to put that into my contract. But that's all the fans saw was me having a conniption fit about to lose my voice in front of thousands of people. Mm. It was the 
or it could have been the Orpheum Theater, beautiful place or whatever, but it was a big place, and I was freaking out. But that's all the fan saw. So the fan got back to the table, and he happened to call in and ask the question and nail me on it and say, what a bitch you were, you were really mean to everybody, you were a blah, blah, blah. Ooh, pardon me. <laughs> and uh, um, you'll have to edit that. And uh, Bruce Allen actually interrupted cut the, the fan off and said, oh, jeez, I don't know how these people get through. You know, they don't see what's going on, and then I got to, he gave me an opportunity to explain exactly what was going on. So I'm not a complete bitch. No. I am willing to understand that the rock and roll is a heightened industry, or an industry where emotions and ego and all those things can get very heightened on the part of both manager, the money makers, the artist, and everybody involved, the band, and those that don't feel that they're, they're making their wage. Mm-hmm. It's all ends. You know what I'm talking about. That's, I think, why the musicians are the royalty, the, the what do you call it, the modern-day royalty. Mm-hmm. And I think also that's why we care. That's why we want to know. We all care about the 27 Club and why things happen to people. Mm-hmm. I learned the other day that the Doors were only a success because of the record company having some slot to fill. They had the, the music made, and it was just a slot to fill. It was political. Really? Yeah, nothing to do with his talent. I just thought, well, who is this guy who can't sing? <laughs> I've never been a fan of The Doors myself, to be honest. Oh, my God, I thought they were awful. And I saw something, which was a, it was a wonderful uh, documentary on, uh, who was it for a film I could remember? And you could watch it, and they could tell you all about The Doors. It was really fascinating information. Mm-hmm. It might have been that uh, that canyon, um, L.A. canyon. Uh, there's a it's on probably Creative TV or on a Canadian uh, network, and it's uh, on pay TV, and it's called uh, Laurel Canyon or something like that. Mm-hmm. To do with what happened and all the people in Laurel Canyon, and then they touched down on a little bit of Manson and and the murder, and a little bit on on all the people that were in the canyon, and the doors was one of them. And they then went into detail on as to why and how they got recorded. It was just somebody needed somebody to fill it. Oh, you'll do. Here, step in. Okay, let's go. And they were hugely successful. <laughs> oh, I come. Uh. Yeah, it was an accident, not waiting to happen. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. This is Brooke. And this is Nikki. And this is my so-called whatever. Hey! Hey guys, we're an 80s and 90s slash NQOTV podcast. That's new kids on the block if you didn't know that. We're here to share your stories. Yeah. And ours. Yeah. And uh, have a good time. Have a great time. Let's be nostalgic. Talk about what it was like growing up in the 80s and the 90s. Talk about what we were wearing, the music we were listening to. The bands we like, the movies we watch, the TV shows, all the pop culture stuff, all of that stuff. That's what we talk about on this podcast. So, and a heavy helping of new kids on the block. Yeah. So, but here's the thing: if you aren't a new kids on the block fan, that's okay because we flip flop between week the to topics week. each week. So we do a new kids on the block episode one week, which we call the block party, and then we do a eighties nineties episode. So, Which is 80s and 90s. Yeah. And we welcome you to listen to one or the other or all. Yeah. Join us. Be our guest. Be our, our guest. guest. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
We're dreaming of a white Christmas on our new VCR. Every family would love a Sanyo VCR with on-screen menu programming and remote control. Now just two hundred and eighty-eight eighty-eight. Nintendo, Nintendo, Nintendo. The hot gift this Christmas is a compact Nintendo Game Boy system, including Tetris Game Pack, just eighty-nine ninety-nine at Wilco. Wilco believes in Santa Claus. White Christmas, Dad. Bodacious. One of the things that I've encountered, I, I used to sing as in my own band for 15 years. And oh, yeah. I would try so hard to make everyone else in the band happy with me because I felt as soon as I put my foot down, I was being called a bitch. Yeah, you know, it's too bad. I didn't care. I didn't care. They thought I was just a year next Tuesday. But the problem with I didn't care. I'm I, sorry, but I did not care because I knew what I had sacrificed, what the, the yes. life I had given up. No children, no husband, no nothing, no, 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 no lover. I didn't go to party. Everybody else went to the parties while I stayed in at night to go in, uh, in my hotel room all night so I could sing the next day because I took what I do very seriously. And if I go partying, I've got no voice. I'm smoking substances, not cigarettes. I'm not drinking, but I'm putting uh, weight on my voice and then I'm not going to be able to meet my contract. And I was very responsible. Yeah, so that's why there's no dirt on me because I was <laughs> such a good girl. But, you know, damn it. If anybody, I was the boss. Yeah. And that's good. That's and I had my name. I, I wanted my name on it. That's why I changed it. Mm. It wasn't a very pleasant name. And I changed the last one lit letter and made Alana Miles and Bob's your uncle and I everybody thinks I'm Jewish. I'm happy with that too, frankly. Mm. Born, born a, a recovering Catholic, but happy to be thought of as Jew. No, and you happy. Should, you should be very, very happy. You should be very proud of what you've done. And I, it inspired me because I realize now that I should have been stronger and I should have put my foot down. Because... Never regret. You can always start now. That's true. That's true. I'm still putting my foot down with people. Yeah. It's surprisingly to me, this is maybe a, a little bit too much for the show, but okay. it's, it's surprising to me how much the, the, the role I chose to play in this life was extremely demanding. And, mm. in, and, and, and it forced me to, nobody could tell me what to do as far as my music was concerned. I wasn't going to sing anything you didn't want me to sing. My writers weren't going to make me sing anything I didn't, that I didn't love. And uh, if I couldn't write it myself, I wasn't going to sing it. Mm. So you really had to measure up to that bar. Otherwise, I wasn't going to sing it. I turned down Joe Carper, for God's sakes. Mm. Sauce Jordan took the job. 
it's a shame too because she's got a great voice. She did a great job with the Joe Cocker, but the song just wasn't right for me. And by that time, I was a huge success with Black Velvet. Why would I? Mm-hmm. And um, unless it was something I chose to do, but I could have said, "Hey, fellas, why don't we write a song for Joe Cocker and me to sing, not choose his lame ass song, <laughs> right?" Sorry, Joe. But anyway, back to the point. You were saying um, we were talking about basically. I want to wind myself back. No, basically, like how we need to be strong and in control of our careers. Or, oh yeah, I know. And, and I said it might be a little too powerful of a show, but I learned something about myself by choosing a very difficult job. Mm-hmm. The universe put uh, real challenges in front of me, mm. like corrupt men, but they were my record company. Uh, they made me the, the, the top dog, like Amadeus to chose me by hand. Uh, all these enormous, uh, born into a wealthy family, everything. There were so many challenges. Every time I went to write a song, something would break down on my tape recorder and I would go mental because how was I supposed to remember it if I didn't have it taped? Mm. There were always challenges. The greater your dream, the greater the challenge. So now, as I grow older, there's a lot of people that try and put their foot down with the, with either my money or my deciding, my decisions or whatever. It doesn't matter who they are. Someone's got a, an agenda and they want to press it. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising now how in my old age, how I'm still finding I still have to say no and mean it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm the one that suffers. And I think it's got something to do with violated children. Mm-hmm. I think early... A suppression of emotions, and I think early childhood um, exposure to not such great stuff, to negative energy, mm-hmm. uh, teaches us, uh, for the rest of my life, I'll be having to learn the lesson of saying no. Mm. And I was born in that era where women were treated like, uh, I wasn't going to get a chance to be you two. Nuh-uh. Mm. Nuh-uh. No, Our World, Our Times was our first, our lead-off single from the second track, Rocking Horse, and they said, no, we don't want you to be political. No, we got you two. We don't need another one. Nah, let's release these songs instead of a kiss. What? Nobody knew who I was. It died. Hmm. Not the rest of the world. It went to number one. But in America, it died. And Madonna copied it. You'll remember her rain video? Yes. Well, remember her song instead of a kiss? Mm, That's absolutely. where she did it. Interesting. Interesting. Remember Like a Prayer? Mm. Black Velvet had just come out. She dyed her hair black and put on a slip. Looked like me. Oh, yeah. She had the curl going on and everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She kissed Jesus. I think she blowed him or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's something really rotten to Jesus. And I think it was a black Jesus, if I recall. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. And she yeah. just broke every rule. And at the same time, she thought, uh-oh, this girl looks too much like me, and she's got talent. So that's what she did. Hmm. And then we were neck and neck with our singles in, in America. Do you know that Black Velvet is the only place in the world that was, it did not go to number one, was England. It, it was under Vogue, and she and her company pumped the money out to prevent Black Velvet from going to number one in England. It's amazing what you can do with record company power, hey? Yeah, I know. She was really visiting her marketing and distribution labels at that point in time. I learned that too. If you go visit them, they'll pump your record first. Mm. So I, you know, I'd be there right after Michael Jackson visited or Pat Benatar or someone like that. They'd send me because they'd want to pump their single. I was just a pawn in a map. Mm. They just sent me around to these places. Oh, I'm a Coyote, I'm a stupid Canadian. You know, I just went where they told me, but I learned what, what, how the pawns work on the on the chessboard. Mm. 
I learned how the bread is buttered. And oftentimes, I'm lear- I learned why. And I was just in your head, singing Gloria. <laughs> <laughs> that was a song that was written by an Italian and a huge song, a four million, six million, or some ridiculous million, multi-million selling hit. This is 30 years ago, mm-hmm. 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then they had, uh, uh, what was her name? Gloria? No, no, no. no the song was called Gloria. They had Gloria some woman named... I don't remember, she was an Atlantic artist, and they dropped everything. She was, excuse me, but she was blowing someone at the top. (laughs) And so they popped a few people out of the queue for that quarter release and popped her in. Laura Brannigan, they popped her in with the Gloria song. She had a huge hit song, and she was blowing somebody, so they popped her in. She had a hit song, and that's the way it goes. Another Doors was created. Hmm. It didn't last. Neither did the Doors, by the way. Offed himself at 27. Yeah, he's in that club. Probably because he was so suffering from such fame and lack of talent. Oh, wow. Everybody, everybody yeah. makes him out into this poet, and I'm thinking, I'm waiting for the poetry. <laughs> I no, never Gordon Light was a poet. They never made Sorry. sense to me. They just... Leonard Cohen was a poet of all poets. Yeah. We're all honored to have been born from the same place as him. Yeah. That mind, oh. And Christopher Ward, if I can give him a little plug right now, mm-hmm. he played me three songs from his new album, and I'm telling you, I'm breathless. The words, the music, the words. And he took some singing lessons, and he did a great job. Oh, good. He's coming up with a new record, and he wrote this one song called Sway. <gasps> Just takes your breath away. That's a song I would sing. That's interesting oh. that he's doing a solo. What I would do with it. Such an, I, I, this week I've had a, a little hop down memory lane listening to his music and his songwriting and remembering what makes me fall in love. It's the person's... I could fall in love with Leonard Cohen tomorrow. I remember. Here's a funny story. After fame, I'm sitting in L.A. in, a, in an Italian restaurant where all these conch shells are like Las Vegas. It's a dinner restaurant, Italian dinner Pretoria or whatever they're called. Mm. And I'm with Christopher and Dave flanking on either side of me. And across on, on from the conch shell, the other conch shell across the way, is Leonard Cohen. And what's the name of the girl that was in that Tom Cruise movie, Rebecca De Mornay? Oh. She dated Leonard Cohen. She lived That's with him for a while. That's right. Okay. Much younger. And I was so jealous of her. And she's there, like, swooning over him. She's there looking at me, paying absolutely no attention to her. She's more interested in me because I'm flanked by two men. Hmm. My two men are all drooling over her, and she's drooling over him, and there was this reciprocal thing going on. It's hilarious. Wow. <laughs> all kinds of... It's unreal. That's the way that the world works. All kinds of attraction and... <laughs> nuts. Yeah. yeah. That's how attraction works. Mm-hmm. We all want what we don't have. Yeah, we all cool. think something looks better than it is. <laughs> this is a little mistake, I suppose, huh? Ah, uh, well. Oh, wow, I'm a, I'm a, lot of, a Lottery Encore winner. I won an Encore ticket. What's that? Um, we have gambling here. Uh, you do, too. It's the uh, Lottery, like Ontario's Lottery. Right. Yours is probably the um, um, Manitoba? No, it's the uh, a- ALGC, the uh, Alberta Gaming Commission. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, you're in everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, 
Who are some of your uh, female music contemporaries that you still uh, talk to and you've enjoyed working with or spending time with? Females. Oh, females. Um, probably my songwriter, Nancy Simmons, who's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, female, oh, Deborah Samuel. She's all, all right now we're doing, we're in the middle of doing two videos. We're doing a bunch of stuff for my 30th year anniversary because I love the number 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm trying to get the stuff out, but COVID's been really challenging us. So I don't know whether I'm going to get it out mm-hmm. in 2020, but it's going to have a 2020 label on it. Because um, 2021, I don't like that number. Sorry. <laughs> it doesn't flow off the tongue very really well. want to get a hold of me, don't they? <laughs> wow. Let me see. There they yeah, are. Same person. Anyway, sorry about this. That's okay. Um, the females I have, uh, um, let's see. I've worked with the Katrina Without Her Wave. Mm-hmm. You know Katrina and the Waves? Yes. Rocking on sunshine. Ah! She didn't write that song, but she makes money off it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see who else. Never met, um, a new rhythmics, any Lennox, but absolutely a fan, huge fan. Oh. Love her as an artist. She's what a wonderful nice. artist. Um, oh, you know, Aretha Franklin sings her ass off. She can sing circles around anybody. Mm. Uh, Christina Aguilera is one of the finest R&B singers in the world. Mm. What a voice. <laughs> wow. And she takes your breath away. It's like, whoa, what this little girl, little thing can do that with her voice. She's so soulful. <laughs> and so so soulful. I love what she did with that uh song that came out with that English artist a couple of years ago. Beautiful. She was leaning up against the piano. Does that say something? Yeah, oh just makes me weave even the title. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't stand there and say something. Uh yeah, I think so. Don't stand there and say something. I'm giving oh. up on you. That one? Don't give up on you. Oh, it just makes you want to weep. It's so beautiful. But we started this by saying poets and Leonard Cohen and all those people. Mm-hmm. People that really are gifted people with words. Oh. Yeah, uh, Robert Priest, I'm uh, one of my favorite po- poets. I took a poem of his at Nancy Simmons, my collaborator. Uh, I was having trouble. I'm falling in love with somebody and they didn't want me. And there was a ghost in this Crane Beach Hotel in Barbados on the on the Atlantic coast, the South South Atlantic coast, the South uh, yeah Atlantic coast, w- w- east side of the island. And I'd gone there, and there was this ghost visiting all the women in the, at night, and they were complaining when I'm feeling them up. No ghost was visiting me. I was so upset. I was just shivering, and the wind was blowing, and I was all upset, and I couldn't write a song to save my life. And at the end of our ten days. You know, close to two weeks of songwriting. We we're supposed to be there songwriting. Nancy gave up on me, and she just put Robert's poems, a bunch of a flock of his poems, on my lap. Mm. And one of the one went by, went no next, and the next, and then one came out, and I went get your guitar now, song, and out came the words. It just dropped out of my mouth. She couldn't play the chords fast enough to keep up with where the, my, the melody was taking me from Robert's words. It was a true, in essence of the word, a true triad. She wrote the chords. I directed that where I wanted my melody to go. Uh, Robert wrote the words that inspired me. It was just the most, we all did our own thing. Hmm. We all, I didn't have anything to do with the chords. I wrote the melody and directed where the melody was going to go within the confines of the lyric. The lyric was what was mapped out in front of me. I took that as my as my direction. It was the most, and 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 I had to fight to get that song in the record. 
I had to fight really hard. So I made it into an orchestrated piece. And I loved what Dave was doing. So the record company did too. And then back to circle back around to the question of that's why they released Song Instead of a Kiss first. Uh, they took a bunch of artists like uh, the guy from In Excess, uh. who I'd met. Oh, and here's another one person. I loved him. Oh, Michael. Um, he was all the women loved him. He was wonderful. Yeah, from In Excess. Uh, I need you tonight. Sexy singer. Yep. Michael, what was his name? Hutchin, Hutch, Hutchinson. I met him. He was delightful. I met him when before fame, when we were dancing in a party. I was wearing a, a dress, dancing up and jumping up and down to a Tom Jones song on, on his hotel room bed. Uh, nothing hunky-funky was going on. We were just having fun. But then I met him later on when I was famous. And we were label mates. And he was ever so nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, such a lovely down-to-earth person. And I'd have gone out with him, except there was this beautiful model girlfriend. <laughs> she looked like me. <laughs> was that who was dating? Uh, uh, who was she? Helena? Oh, she's beautiful. She Helena lives in Prague. Anywho, as you can see, I'm terrible with names. Eventually, I get them. Okay. Um, I, uh, both um, In Excess and Mick Jagger, who've written a beautiful ballad, a beautiful ballad, and my song instead of a kiss, and a few other artists from Atlantic at the time who were on the same label, run by the uh, the fellow that uh, was at the top at the time. And because they wanted to have Grammys, they weren't making decisions based on the intelligence that managers were helping. Hmm. Like my manager said, release Our World, Our Times. And they said, no, 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 let's go with the song she wrote. We're going with a sensitive songwriter thing. No, but you don't understand, she's a rock artist. She's got all these rock people. Put out a rock song, let her rule. Mm-hmm. And they said, nope, nope, nope. So they did the same thing I found out later to Mick Jagger and Michael Hutchins and a few others. They all put out ballads and they all died. And all the money they spent, they had allotted for the, the full year for all our campaigns. Mm-hmm. For, like they used to give you four quarters of money to spend on the promotion. They spent it all on the first promotion so there was no money left so they lost all the records. They all died. Every single one of them. And they're all brilliant records. Including Rocking Horse, if I do say so myself. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, that's where that went. Their ego. They just wanted Grammys. They were only thinking Grammys. Just like the Republican Party right now thinking, I just want to get what I want. I just want what I want. It's the American principle towards things. It wasn't, it's not for the greater good. It's selfish. No, it's not for the greater good. It's for, it's for what we think is going to, and we're smart. We know. Mm-hmm. They're riding on real high on their laurels and not trusting the artist or the manager or anything. And if I had gone the route my manager wanted to go, well, here's the thing. My manager was Danny Goldberg. He was a real trendsetter in those days. He managed Nirvana, Pat Benatar, me, Bonnie Raitt. Oh, my God. Uh, who didn't he manage? <laughs> so he um, was managing me and he came to the record company and he said we got to do this our world as a lead-off single it's going to be a killer mm-hmm. she'll sell a million out of the box well the next thing you know he decides to leave management go and become a record company vice president at my record company and can no longer manage me so he's now the record company and then goes with their decision to no longer feels the same way about the single he was managing and then goes with the decision of going with the ballot mm-hmm. And he flipped his decision, gaslighting. Wow. No different. So my career suffered for political reasons. Mm-hmm. And I have other reasons that I can't go into because I think it would be um, 
I'll save it for the book and I'll save it for, for when the people die and I can write it. Then nobody gets. I hope there's a book. I don't feel safe right now in writing it because why would I write a book that's half truth? Mm-hmm. No one would believe me, and if I if I told them, I don't want to go to court for the rest of my life. This is not the right time. It's not the right time. Let the people die. Mm-hmm. Then then I can say what I want, and they they can't you know sue me. They're so wealthy. Forget it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to uh, toy with. Uh, I I I brushed with that dance before, and I took myself out. Do you feel like they're losing their power in this day and age because everybody can make that release their own music now? They don't. They're not necessary. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that finally? Isn't that Black Lives Matter? Don't you think it's not just a reckoning between the color of our skin? You know, Hmm. it's between the righteousness of what is right and wrong. Period. You can't keep on taking from these people, these talented people, taking, 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 and then just fucking lining your pockets and then dealing. You know, I was I was broke. Mm. Eighteen of of the eighteen years it took for them to pay me my first royalty before I paid back seven million dollars that it cost me to pay for my recording career mm-hmm. because they took every dollar that I made uh, and made me pay it back before I saw a penny. And in doing so. I was dead broke. I had to borrow five hundred dollars from my mother to get to New York City to make to ma- master my first debut record because they felt I was a woman, even though I've been making it all along, and that I didn't belong there. Instead, they said Christopher, the songwriter and the producer, mm-hmm. what? And they both knew that it was wrong. So I borrowed five hundred bucks from my mom to get down and stay with a girlfriend who was an actress and heard her acting coaching at seven in the morning and I was coming home at three in the morning from mixing every night in their studio. And then three albums later, I sold, I don't know, upwards of eight million records and I, uh, I'm i borrowing $500 for my mother to get to the studio, to Metalworks Studio in Toronto mm-hmm. to mix my third record. So that's how I was treated. And they spend all my this- first. Royalty check was for five thousand dollars. Man cannot live on five thousand dollars in three months. No. So I then had to fight with Atlantic forever and ever and ever and ever to pinpoint the problem, which was I had four Atlantic accounts and I wasn't seeing any of the money. What? Yeah, I know. They condensed them. Finally, now I make money. Now, who is in your corner? When dealing with finances, did you have to have an entertainment lawyer to deal with all this stuff? You're looking at her. Wow. All by, all by myself. Nowadays, I don't, I tell people I spoke to my lawyer because that's what they need. Mm. I don't need to call a lawyer and have him hold my hand to, to charge me $2,000 to know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. I've been there. I've done it. I know. I tell people I called the lawyer because I'm a girl. And they're going to say, oh, no, you don't know. Jeez. I don't need to. I can tell you this because I feel uh, it might help people listening. I don't really give a shit. So many people I've talked to have said, you know, all there's all this opulence. There's all this, like, they're... You really have to be as strong as I am a bitch. I'm not a bitch. I'm just really strong. You're strong. Yeah, exactly. I'm extremely strong, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm suffering from physical ailment, but I'm still not going to die. How are you doing with that? How, how... Uh, it's a challenge. Yeah. 
a challenge. Like I said, there's a book to be written, and I'm right in the middle of a litigation, so I can't talk about it. Yeah. You know, I can't talk about what's going on. So uh, I am okay. You can hear me. I sound okay. Physically, I'm a wreck, but I'll get there. You sound great. I have my challenges. You sound great. Well, I'm, thanks. Yeah. I'm not finished with music either. My voice has not left me. Mm. It just takes a little while to get stuff out, you know? I've, I've got, I'm still working with Mike Borkowski. We're remixing my Arrival record and calling it Arrived. Mm -hmm. And I'm so pleased with the mixes. He's doing such a fine job. Wonderful. And Miles Copeland gave me back the, um, after much, you know, um, begging and kicking and screaming, they gave me my record back, The Arrival, which I'm very pleased because I, I wrote the songs and I own it. Mm -hmm. And I leased my record to an independent label that took all the money. That it came, I saw nothing except debt. And so I finally left after five years of leasing and boy, did they get angry. And I realized they were making, I realized after, well, now how much money they were making from me, why they were so angry. Mm -hmm. Because they were doing nothing and they were making money from me, you know, me on their roster. So, um, and cachet on the roster, you know. So I, uh, uh, and now I, uh, it took me years, but I finally released on digitally in America on, uh, I have American bank accounts. I transfer funds. I, I'm the, uh, main cook and bottle washer. Mm -hmm. It was until I took back managerial possession of my life that I started making money. My goodness. That's amazing. Yeah. I'm afraid an artist has to be the financier. If they're not, you watch the money go in other people's pockets and I'm talking many zeros. Mm -hmm. Time. Well, I'm glad you're yeah. in a position now where you can be the one making the money. Yeah, it's nice, and I've still got a voice left, and not not done yet. Mm -hmm. No, and I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to be performing and releasing soon. I, I, well, I, saw, I saw a couple pretty of pretty much uh, regurgitated stuff because I I'm not able to move forward with a record. It's expensive, and I'm not going to. Uh, I mean, I spent a quarter million dollars on my last record. I'm not going to make it back for another 10 years. So um, I think uh, I'll, I will invest when, it, when the right time arrives. Right now I've got too many things in front of me stopping me. So I'm just taking what product I do have and making making it like product. I've got some really great songs uh, that I've not released uh, ever and I own uh, that I could make some, you know, just introduced maybe they could be in movies i don't know you just got to get it out there right. and uh, I, uh i'm putting out a record called demos with a super sexy picture and if anybody ever had any uh doubt as to which picture the one with the clothes on and one, one with, with boobs and legs um i released it um on facebook and got about seven thousand hits in about two days nice so i i think people like the boobs <laughs> i think i'll go with the boobs yeah, I think I'll go with the boob shot. And I'm calling it demos. I'm putting a bunch of stuff on it that I found in my, my arsenal. And it's really good. What a house of love. What a great song. I should, uh, it gives me such joy now to hear it. I don't know why I didn't release it. I don't know why. Mm. I, I guess maybe because well, when you hear the song, you're going to think I'm singing about the guy in the, in the White House. Living in the house of love, living in the house of love. Joker's turned into a clown. You'd think the whole parade had drowned. Living in the house, living in the house of love. <laughs> it's very interesting, the timing. I wrote it 20 years ago. 
and demoed it with a guy in England that worked with uh, Robert Plant, uh, Phil, Phil Johnstone. Mm-hmm. He'll be delighted because he'll make some coin out of it. If it. And if it goes viral, we'll all make money. Absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm actually looking forward to it. I love being a record company owner, and I love doing it now. I was so frightened that I continued down the path until three company, record companies later and zero dollars in the bank. And now I've got money in the bank. I'm managing it well. I don't have a car because I, I, I can't get from A to B at this point in my life. But um, it would be you know, ridiculous to spend the money unless I need it. I will one day when I need it, but right now... That you'd be surprised how much a car takes up of your day, of your yearly income. A lot, just insurance yeah. alone. Whether you drive it, rent it, lease it, own it, or what? Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Who's going to lay out sixty grand for a vehicle? Or in my case, eighty or hundred, right? Because I'm going to want a nice fancy, fancy one. <laughs> Whatever. True. No, it's. I've gone from Hondas to uh, to Mercedes. So I go in between. Mm-hmm. Doesn't really matter. You go with what you can afford. Yeah. However, you know, I, I I think I understand the path now, and I, there's still I still got about twenty five or thirty years left on this planet to go uh, uh, to to go change a few things. So maybe maybe if I get really smart, I can help other people because I'm it's so easy for me now. Mm-hmm. I understand how people took advantage of me. It was so easy. All you did was take it, put your name on it, put it in a company, and then give that artist. Maybe 15% and keep the rest. Well, even you just sharing these experiences is helping somebody. It's definitely helping me and it's helping the listeners that they're going to know, okay, well, these, these are the pitfalls. you got to avoid they these. They must know themselves and they must say no. Uh, it's sort of like Dragon's Den mm-hmm. or Arch Tank, you know. Um, there's a point, it's, it's a volatile teeter-tottering, you know, as to when you say yes to the deal because you got the help you need. Like, I can bitch and complain all I want, but if I did not have Atlantic Records manning my music, nor had I not had Fran Lickman, who was the head of the international department, pushing, pushing, pushing my record for me internationally, I would, I would never have been a success outside of Canada and had a career and making money all over the world now. Mm-hmm. That never would have happened. It never would have happened if I signed a deal in Canada. But I was rejected outright. I was rejected by every record company that was possibly known to mankind in Canada, and they all know it, and they all hated me. And if they're listening now, too bad, motherfuckers. (laughs) You can say what you want. You didn't make me successful. Atlantic Records did because they had the money, and they were smart enough to leave Christopher and David and I alone. And they let, let us do our thing. Nobody has ever, no A&R man has ever told me what to do until Miles Copeland, and boy, do we have fights. Mm. Mind you, when we fought over songs with, like, everything missing or off my uh, Alana record, the third record, and the other one was, um, uh, hold on, everything missing was on, oh, it was on my Arrival record, which I own. I'm working on it now. Wicked drums. And that's the way I rewrote it. I was so angry because I didn't want to do it. And said, oh, I'll fucking show you. And then out that came. And I went, wow, you should get anywhere else. But, uh, and, and, and uh, oh, uh, there was a wonderful song I didn't want to put on my record. And Miles Copeland fought me on it. And I did it out of spite. And I'm really glad I did. Which one? Um, 
Everybody's breaking up. Mm. It's really, really dark and dreary, but it's a wicked vocal. I want to play a clip of it on the show. <laughs> oh, it's just terribly, um, a sophisticated lyric written by Pat McDonald from Timbuk3, uh, Future So Bright, Gotta Wear Shades. Yeah. And he's a wonderful, wonderful writer. I just love him. What a great writer. Wonderful guy to work with. I was so spoiled. I got a chance to go to Miles Copeland's castle and write with all these best writers in the world for about uh, three years consecutively. Mm-hmm. It was really a lot of fun. I've had a fun, fun career. I've had a lot of fun, and I've been very spoiled. I really did come with a silver spoon in my mouth. I held out for what I knew my music deserved because I really believed I was born to be an artist. Mm-hmm. And I really knew I, I really needed the love of people in my music. They didn't have to love what I looked like. They didn't have to love anything else, but they had to love what I created. And I worked very, very hard. And as I said earlier, I sacrificed more than you can possibly imagine. And I, so I earned it. And uh, so when I look back now, um, it, I look back fondly on all my sacrifices and recognizing that with no pain, no gain. Mm. You know, I hear young ladies, and they they listen to a few other singers scratch the warble their way through a vocal, but they forgot to belt it out. Yeah. They forgot to use their what God gave them, their diaphragm, their lungs, their, yeah. you know. Take a few, go to the best vocal coach you can find. Ask around for a good vocal coach from one of the top bands that are being put out by a record company that they're paying a vocal coach to train them so they can keep their voice. Go take a few lessons and learn how to sing. Yeah. I did. Christopher uh, it went back to the same person who taught me a few of those lessons. It was the same woman. Uh, what was her name? I roll my eyes in the air. Lane, Lane's Overholt. And she coached the people from the movie from Chicago. Okay, yeah. The gear and all those. It was great. She coached them for that movie. And that was my coach. Vocal coaching. And it teaches you to open up your voice. If it wasn't for vocal coaching, I didn't know I was going to be singing uh, show after show after show, night after night, and lose my voice like, like you know, uh, have my voice, like have to threaten them like uh, Stevie Nicks, that, you know, you either stop and go one on, one off, or uh, we quit and get a lawyer's letter drafted because you have to lose your voice. That's how hard they push you. Yeah. You have to sing. They don't care you're going to lose your voice. Night after night, after night, and it's like it's an instrument. It's so frustrating when you get really, really important. If you don't have the management, and I did not have the management, nobody took care of me. In fact, they just bailed and went to the record company. Mm. And then Miles Copeland was my manager, but eventually, when I got off the label, he wound up becoming my uh, record company, and then conflict of interest. You know, you have to have a manager pushing and. And I, eventually I left him, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry that there was people in the way. I wish I'd stayed with them. We would have worked it out. We would have figured it out. But there were people in the way, and they were mean and cruel, and he wasn't recognizing it. Mm. So I left. Mm-hmm. He knows now. We all know. doesn't matter. He just consulted me, actually, for a book he's writing. I asked you to, to shed some memory on some of the things that had happened, and I gave a detailed description of how we met, blah, blah, blah. 
Oh, yeah. It's really nice. I like uh, harmony between people. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm meeting with Christopher on Sunday, my shining partner. And David Tyson, uh, I sent him a check for from uh, one of my records that he from the Black Velvet. He, re he reproduced my, uh, he did an original version, of, uh, re reproduction of uh, Black Velvet for, um, uh, uh, for 12 years, the record company wouldn't allow me. It was in my contract, mm -hmm. and I couldn't find it because I didn't have an American lawyer for two and a half years. Uh, and, and two years of the statutes of limitations uh, kicked in, and I couldn't sue. So I was in this bum deal for eight albums, with, and I'm fucking this huge star with no money. And nobody believes me. German, Germans would laugh at me. They go, ha, ha, you're broke. Ha, she's broke. She's broke. <laughs> Not funny. But they thought it was ludicrous. That's where they laughed. They're funny people, Jerry. I love them. So, um, what happened was uh, the um, record company stopped me from re-recording Black Velvet for 12 years. So the minute I got my uh, that that contractual obligation was freed, I cut it again. About maybe eight, 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 well, I cut it five years ago. But I so I waited about three years, and I got David to uh, to recut it for me. Mm. And it's almost identical. And I did it for, an, uh, for a reason. I want to make 85%, not 15. Amen. And if somebody wants to advertise it, well, use mine. I'll charge you less. So I undercut my record company. Screw them. I'm within my legal right. How can we do that? How can we make sure that we're playing your version so you get the credit? You go to uh, the 85 BPM record. Mm. And the third track in is Black Velvet, like the first. Okay, good. We're gonna plug that. We're gonna plug that. Go to Apple or Spotify, and you go to the 85 BPM. Just look for the black label with the tits on it. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's tits and crotch. Uh, it's like 85 BPM is my heart rate, and it's also the lead off signal, which is called 85 BPM. Mm. It's a silly little drum machine. It goes 85 BPM, and then this song kicks in for the first track off the top, and then I put the Black Velvet third. But the remake, the remake, but that's where you find it. Look you good. buy that one, you're going to get the original, and you pay me, not the record company. Good, that's the one we're going to promote then. And then I pay the writers. <laughs> Excellent. And the producer, of course. All right, everyone's heard it here first. That's where you find it, 85 BPM. That's the one. 85 BPM. <laughs> I have a couple, well, I have a listener question for you, actually, about uh, your photo shoots and, and your wardrobe over the years. What was your favorite outfit that you ever wore? That was a question from James. I haven't worn it yet. Ah. Oh, fuck, there's so many nice clothes out there. I haven't worn it yet. But to be honest with you, I don't know if it ever got seen, because I wore it to, I bought this stunning sea aqua glass, sea glass aqua sheer silk uh, sort of Edwardian midi dress mm. uh, with a princess uh, waistline and three little silk buttons and it draped off and it had this sash that was really, really wide and you you sash it around the shoulders to make it like Carolina uh, Harar and, uh, and I went with pearls and uh, Indian jewelry like ugly dark silver jewelry mm. and, and beautiful thick pearls and beautiful earrings and I wore it to a benefit for AIDS in Toronto many years ago, around 1995, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was stunning. 
and I wore it with a black leather jacket. And was that the last time you wore it? Which one? Was that the last time you've worn it? Yeah. Okay. It's the only time I ever wore it. But you better do it again. That'd be great. It kind of faded. <laughs> I think it worked only then, you know? Mm. But it was just beautiful. Uh, the Let me think. I bought something. I bought more and sold it. I had a, a merch shop, and I would buy... I'd buy stuff wholesale or I'd find it and sell it for the price that people were willing to pay and uh, with my name on it. But people bought it. They were buying it for my name. They were buying it because it was a gorgeous piece. Mm-hmm. And I bought some beautiful uh, stuff by, uh, what's his name? Oh, it starts with a C. Uh, Scabudo? No, no. That's a photographer. But anyway, I do my own wardrobing. Uh, well, I was going to work with a girl... Uh, but prior to the COVID sanctions that prevented us from doing a video with having to work with it, but I would definitely hire her um, to do a documentary if, we, if that comes up. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not ready for that yet. We're, we're going to work on videos and get my profile up and, and put my put some visual content out there prior to these new um, uh, you know releases of new material. Mm-hmm. New old material, but it's new to people. They never heard it. Some of it they never heard before. It's very cool. I got one song all about sex that I wrote with Mark Hudson. It's called Who's Next? And it was a duet written for me and the Aerosmith dude, Steve Tyler. Yeah. But And I'm saying it right here. Steve Tyler was too jealous to sing it with me. Oh, Steve. Fucker. <laughs> Fuck you, Steve. Just out. Ouch. Yeah. I like Steve. We met each other many times. He was very nice to me. I liked his partner, too. They were both nice nice fellows. But anyway, he wouldn't sing it with me. He thought I'd show him up. He's very insecure. But he's a fool. We would have done a, a wicked job on it. I think maybe because he didn't write it. You think so? Well, I, if I were him, I would do the same thing. you got a record that's going to sell Leather and Elevator and millions of records. Mm. You want to make sure that all the songs on it are written by you. Yeah. And I had written a song with his writer, Mark Hudson. It's called Who's Next, and it's just a fantastic song about what 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 goes on in the mind of someone leading up to sex. Mm-hmm. It's very rude. You can imagine, the chorus goes, stop, who's next? Mm. Oh, it's just like, if I release this now, I'm working on the mastering of it right now, I finally found a copy of it on a DAT that I can now master properly because it was only a demo. Yeah. But I can get the mastering fellow, Peter J. Moore, does a wicked job. He's one of the finest masters in Ontario. If Maybe there's three guys in the, one in the East Coast, one in Quebec, and one in Ontario. And maybe there's somebody in Edmonton, I don't know. But anyway, he, um, he, uh, he's going to master it, and I'm going to put it on this record, and, and uh, it could still see life in films. Or it's a great song for an impacting moment. You know, there's still life left in my repertoire, which is really fun for me to to, to play with now and own. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now that um, you're in control of everything musically, financially, do I have your permission to play a few clips from some of the Spotify songs that are under your name and your your release? Because I am registered with SoCan, so. Oh no, you're welcome. It's all licensed. Okay. I, I, I license it with uh, TuneCore, so all of the stuff on Spotify is all mine. Nice. Okay, good. Good. I'll Except just... for the first record. I'll just Actually, that's things. not true. First, second, and third. Atlantic owns that. Oh. And that's fine, but there's uh, Arrival and 85 BPM, yeah. I own. Okay. Okay, good. I'll play a few clips, so just some clips so that people can get a taste of what the... 
what they're besides the big hits. You know, I want them to hear some of the deep cuts. Yeah, some of the big cuts. Uh, I learned as as life grew on. People were uh, the commercial crowd was offended when they heard some of the songwriting albums. Uh, I didn't have Kirk playing on the uh, uh, the arrival record, which uh, so I just uh, had a, a soloist record. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only one that noticed Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> He called me up and said, nice work, Alana. I said, well, she, she, it's our secret. I just thought if I can't have Kurt playing on it, we were going through a breather. And uh, uh, we're buddies now. I just love him a bit, so I'll get him to play on my next stuff if I can. Mm-hmm. Good. And he's dying to play back again with me. But, you know, listen, we're nobody's touring right now. Nope. Everything's on hold. We're all looking for creative ways to get our music out to people to make them laugh and cry and smile and dance. And Lord knows, make babies again. Oh, yeah. It's going to be, uh, th- if you look at this in a positive light, it's the time to make that music, write that music, get it out. And yeah, you're right. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm using the money that people pay me for my records, my recordings, and they do now, finally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm getting playing catch up. And I'm spending that money rather than putting it in the pockets of the, of, of the government. It's within my legal right to spend money on my own career because mm-hmm. I own myself. So I'm putting my money, my hard-earned dollars, the, the money that people have been so kind enough to play uh, from every time they spin my records, uh, I'm putting that back into new music for the people. Thank goodness. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you I think you got to do that. Thank you for still doing it, Matt. I, I can't wait. Oh, I'm excited about it. You're kidding. I, I can hardly wait to. Uh, it's exciting for me because I, there's something at the end of the tunnel for me. But no wonder why I was such a pee in the, uh, 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 um, what do you call that, stick in the mud. Because I was making all this music and everybody was making all the money. That's why I put a naked person holding a horse like they've been squashed mm. on the second album. Mm-hmm. You know, and like a, a naked woman, like Lady Godiva, she's got nowhere to go, so she's going to stand loud and proud naked, clutching onto this horse that could crush her beneath its feet. That's the imagery. Yeah. I drew it on a plane on my way down to decide the record jacket, and I didn't know what it was going to be. And I'd lost my Deborah Samuel, because she had a fit over the way she was treated. And I wanted to make more music with her, and they, they offed her after all those successful videos. They said no for Black Velvet. And I was, what do I do? I want the record company to spending their money. They went with Americans. So she was so upset. She I can't work with your people. So I was in L.A., and I went, oh, please, Deborah, don't do this, don't do this. So I went, and I found this group, a husband and wife team. I picked them, and I first I went to the record company, and I said, I want to put, I drew a picture of me clutching on the horse. I drew what I saw on the front cover, mm-hmm. even though... I didn't know what was going to make the front cover because you go with the best photo. Mm-hmm. But I drew on the cocktail napkin from the airline, Air Canada um, cocktail napkin, I drew a picture of me with my arm curled up around the neck of a horse, uh, one, uh, a big Neanderthal uh, Frisian horse, which uh, um, um, uh, um, is really, really thick, thick, long, long mane, and I put on a fringe vest, and I stood, well, actually, I stood naked holding the horse, and opted to wear no underwear because I would have had to airbrush out a thong. Yeah. And it was, I didn't enjoy that part. I don't like posing naked in a desert underneath the, the, the you know, the, the, the a, a, a horse with pie plate feet. Hmm. You know, they just swap a fly, and it's then, uh, it's their foot's on top of yours. Yeah. But that's what we did, and I, all for the case of art, and 
and I couldn't use the album jacket in certain places like Malaysia. They had to use the one with clothes on because they can't depict women that way. Right. And, and like, there's a naked picture now, well, half naked, and it's a beautiful picture Deborah wanted to use as a front cover for Arrived. I said, no, I can't do that. I won't get seen in Japan, Malaysia. There'll be plenty of countries that are open to the music, but can't. They, 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 no, they won't release it. They'll just show X. Mm. So I've chosen the shot... Uh, real, uh, uh, it's very contemporary, very theatrical. Hmm. Bill Bowler. The From the same shoot. The beautiful. She, she uh, dressed it up real nice for me, made it up like, uh, it's already on the, the TuneCore uh, docket waiting. I just have to wait for the materials to get mixed and mastered. Hmm. I like that TuneCore. Good enough. Anyway, they're there to look for two new records. I don't know which one's going to come first. Arrived and Demos 2020. Excellent. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Good. And Demos 2020 is going to take you for a loop. I'm going to play a few different songs in different languages. Well, there. French and English. No, no, French and Spanish. Nice. Yeah. I did them. Why not share them? I know it sounds like I'm singing French with a Portuguese accent, but whatever. <laughs> They'll laugh at me, I know, but at least I tried. Oh, no, I'm, I'm excited for it. And I'm going to make sure that all the links are out there that people can find everything that you've Well, you've been a delight. I really enjoyed your uh, interview. And I, I, when uh, I got sent the link, uh, I went onto your site and I could tell I liked you right away. And you do have a singer's voice, a lovely voice. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I've learned a lot today talking to you. So. Oh, how nice. She's not lovely. Thank you very much. I'm glad. I'll be putting this one out on the week of Christmas. It's oh, how a, nice. It's My birthday. birthday. <laughs> Mine's on the 27th, so how do you feel? Oh, about... you know what it's like to uh, not have a birthday. That's right. Everybody yep. is always gone somewhere else. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'll be putting it out that week, and then I'll tag you in all the media, and I'll share some... Well, that'd be well, so I'll make sure I put it up on my social sites. Thank you so much, Alana. Right, you take care. Thank you very much for a lovely, lovely time. Yeah, you too, and uh, be safe out there. Yeah, you too. Stay safe, okay? Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Can't stand the rain again. Can't stand the rain again. Can't stand the rain against my window. Bringing back sweet memories. There were no
best time ever. <laughs> best, best interview ever. I don't think I've uh, ever been so, so happy to uh, have had such an experience like speaking with Alana. I'll tell you that. Very inspiring lady. Uh, thank you, Alana, once again for your time. You can check her out at alanamiles.com. She shares all the links to her social media. And you can buy her music directly off the website and make sure that you are supporting her directly, okay? Now, before we leave, I just want to tell you next week, we have a special guest by the name of Adam Emil, who's a musician who's got to tour with so many 90s artists and do so many cool things that he's going to tell us all about. And that will be coming out, obviously, right before the end of 2020, the worst year ever. <laughs> but I do want to take this time to thank you once again for making my year, for being a listener, for even if you just discovered this podcast. It means a lot to me that you listen, you engage, and that you share it with your friends and other people who might be interested. Thank you for supporting Dope Nostalgia, and I wish you a very, very Merry Christmas and a happy 2021. Be very safe out there, guys. Take care. Follow us on Facebook at Dope Nostalgia, Instagram, Dope underscore Nostalgia, or on Twitter at Nostalgia Dope. This podcast is licensed by SoCan because we believe that artists should be paid for their work.